This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. struggling to know how to describe this particular message or even the preparations for this particular message. I've had very little time uh, this week. We're recording an audio book just on the side, preparing for a conference. And uh, I, I remember thinking at some point, it was like noon on Friday, that in the midst of a conference and recording an audiobook all this next week too, that I need to create five and a half messages. I know, how in the world do I get a half? That's because I have a half already done. And I get that feeling every now and then. It's a very human feeling of being a bit overwhelmed. It's like, Lord, I think I have too much on my plate. At the same time, I've been in that spot so many times in my life, and there's a secret to it, but I have to remind myself of the secret every time. For whatever reason, have you ever noticed we have to rehearse truth and it doesn't, it's not just there, it's like, oh, I learned that, now I always know it. Well, you could always know it, but you have to rehearse it to always know it. And that is that it's not up to me, it is up to him. And so it's a very interesting dynamic that God was sort of doing in my life this morning as I got up. I got up very early this morning because I knew I had a lot to do before I came at eight this morning to the campus. And God will do this to me every now and then. Okay, just want to prepare you. He might do it to you in the future as well. And it's a good, it's a gift. However, I find that the human side of me wants to argue that. And that is that I have a clear sense when I have a message I'm supposed to give and when I have a message I'm not supposed to give. And I had a clear sense that I was supposed to give a message, or at least a piece, that this was my message, this was my placeholder. And then I got to this morning, I woke up, and I had a clear sense I wasn't supposed to give that message. But I didn't have time to create another one. Oh, Lord. Okay, could we discuss this before you make a final statement from heaven on this? I don't have a lot of time. You know, here I am negotiating these things. And so I finally, I came to the place, I was like, yes, Lord, I do not want to preach a message that isn't on your heart, that isn't what you're wanting to say. It's truth. But there's, being in stride with the Spirit of God is a very, very important part of our lives. And to do what he is doing, not to just speak something that's true, but to speak something that is in alignment with what he is desiring to speak. It's very, very important. So I relinquished and I said, yes, Lord, absolutely. What, what do you have? And I found myself, I was praying, I, I always pace, and so I'm walking around the kitchen, living room area early in the morning. And uh, my, my prayer was, Lord, uh, I need you to give me something. Okay, if you're going to take that, I need you to give me something. And what was interesting is I felt like there was a correction from the Spirit of God on that exact point. It's like, Eric, I just want you to be with me. If you want to have something today, the key is forget about that, what you're going to give, and focus on me. Classic God right there, isn't it? It's like we are doers. We love to produce. And if we have a job like we're supposed to be speaking, of course that's what's in our mind. And Jesus says, it's about me, isn't it? If your sermon is true and right and has all the correct doctrine, but it lacks the intimacy, it doesn't flow out of an intimate walk that you share with me, it is empty, Eric. 
fresh lesson for Eric. I know this lesson. I know it very well, and yet I have to learn it over and over and over again. And I feel like the reason God even asked to swap out messages for me this morning was for me. I don't know what it's going to mean to you, right? But for me, that is such a critical life lesson. Eric, it's about me. It's not about delivering messages. It's not about just being doctrinally accurate. All those things matter. Messages matter. Doctrinal accuracy matters. But if we miss Jesus in the whole thing, what's it about? What if we've lost our compass? It's no longer on north. And we will start to go wayward as the church of Jesus Christ, as individuals and as a body. So this is a message I didn't expect to give this morning. And how it all came together in such a short period of time, it's a collection of multiple thoughts that if you've been in the Ellerslie world for years, you've heard this. And at the same time, I feel like it's critical for my soul to rally around the center afresh. What is this all about? We open the Bible, what is it about? Is, you know, a lot of us, when we're growing up, we're memorizing scriptures, we're learning stories, we're learning this idea of there's a God and uh, he has done a great work on planet Earth, but what is that great work? What is it all about? It's all about one thing. And so when we disciple here at Ellerslie, we call it the five fingers. And, you know, and there's a reason for that, because we are like a glove and God is like that hand. And a glove apart from the hand is rather pathetic, right? And, but when that hand is in that glove, suddenly that pathetic glove can do amazing things. It can do anything that the hand could do. And so when we talk about the five fingers, it's those points of truth that truly bring Christianity to life. The word of God in text. It's the Bible. The word of God in person. His name is Jesus Christ. The word of God in action. The cross. When the word of God in text what does it reveal? It reveals a man who will come, and he will do something. That action is the center. You take those first three fingers, and you bind them up and wrap them up and say, that's how you find life and salvation right there, is by giving your life to him to believe that word and what it says about that man and what that man did on that cross. Boom! You have life. You have salvation when you put your faith in that work. But there is a result of that faith, and that is the word of God is now in us. And then when the word of God enters into us, it doesn't just want to hang out. He wants to work through us. So the word of God in text, the word of God in person, the word of God in action, the word of God in us, and the word of God through us. Christianity. And when those things are present and powerful, the world is changed. When I'm believing that word, it leads me to that man. And when I focus on that man and remember what he did on that cross, then I find my life now rightly centered. My compass is correct. My orientation is right. And then as that living God fills my life and I yield to him, then out of my life comes forth fruit. Through my life comes forth that very word, that very Christ, that very man, that very work on the cross begins to be evidenced in and through me. So why would I want to focus on something else? Why would I want to give a message that isn't right in the center with all of what God is doing? I don't want to waste my life doing that. And yet all of us in here have a tremendous propensity to waste our life. You ever notice that? Wow, do we have a propulsion, a pull away from that center. So I just feel like we need to talk about the center. 
So my message that I'm giving is called the wooden refuge, even though that was my previous message. But since I already had the graphic, this message is called the wooden refuge. It's just the entire message on the inside has been changed out. It still, still works. <laughs> in the middle of the middle. So this comes from a statement in Revelation, and it's from two different verses, and it's talking about this lamb, which we know as Jesus, and he's slain in the midst of the throne. And so he appears slain as in the midst of the throne. It's obviously a picture of the Christ in the midst of the throne. And so it says, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain. For the lamb, and this is uh, chapter 7, verse 17, For the lamb which was in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. This term, in the midst of, uh, is, is fascinating, anamesos, which basically is sort of like in the middle and in the center, or in the midst of, in the middle. And so it's this concept of in the center of the center, in the middle of the middle. So in the middle of the middle of all that heaven is focused on is a lamb who was slain. And this is an incredible message to our soul. Out of all things, in all of God's creation, there is a center of centers, There is a middle of middle, and for us to make sure that we become experts right there, that that becomes the great study of our soul, the great meditation of our life. And who is there? A lamb that was slain. That is the center. That is the middle of the middle. So I I have the word epicenter, where probably many of you are familiar uh, with it, but it comes from two different uh, words, epa and kentron, but epa is upon or on top of or founded on, and kentron, the middle, the center, the midst. So that's like a pretty good English word for it, at the epicenter of heaven, at the very center. But epicenter is usually, for us in the English language, not used to describe heaven, it's used to describe an earthquake. Isn't that interesting? And so, which is not lost on me, and that's what's fascinating to my soul, is this very word that in our language so depicts this is actually used to describe the place of great mm, disaster. And uh, that actually becomes very significant. This is what the word epicenter means to us. That which occupies a cardinal point, something situated on center in the position of greatest importance. The point on the Earth's surface vertically above the hypocenter of focus of an earthquake. The point where an earthquake or underground exploding originates. The central point of something, typically a difficult or unpleasant situation and often the place of greatest damage. And so the epicenter of something is really not where you want to be, according to the human thinking, right? And yet God, in his word, is going to say, I want to invite you to the epicenter. And we're like, well, but God, that's, that's the place of an earthquake. I mean, that, that's dangerous. It's like, unless you come to this place and make this your home, you cannot find life. If you try and self-preserve and stay away from this epicenter, you will die. But I have created a refuge for you in the midst of what appears to you as a human to be death. I mean, look at a cross, guys. A cross, now a cross, we don't hang people on crosses in our modern era. It's not a normal, fa- uh, normal behavior pattern for us. But back in that day, when Jesus, even before he died on the cross, says, pick up your cross and follow me, people, <laughs> it had to sound strange. 
And now, you know, pick up your electric chair and follow me. That's not a normal statement either, because at least you can carry across. I don't know what it would be like to drag an electric chair. But it's a, it's a device that kills. And Jesus is allying himself with this symbol even before he dies upon it. And for us, we need to recognize that the invitation is to a place of death and to a place that doesn't look very attractive to the natural man. And yet in that place is our refuge, is our salvation, is our life. At the very center of the center is a lamb that was slain. He says, you come there and you find life. So the epicenter of the word, if I was going to say, what is the middle of the middle of the word of God? Well, it's Jesus and him crucified. And of course, Paul is going to say the exact same thing when he's talking in to the church at Corinth. And he's going to say, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus and him crucified. In other words, Paul has given us a north star. He's given us the center of the center. This is that man and what that man did is everything in all of this grand revelation of God's word. Every word in God's word matters. Every word in God's word is grand and perfect and true. And yet all of it is supposed to lead you somewhere. You know, there's so many people with great doctrine that miss the man. They know all about salvation and forget the man of salvation. And so they have a technically down, theologically correct, and miss the man. But it is all about a person and what that person did. And that is the center of the center. So the epicenter of the word, Jesus, and him crucified. The epicenter of history. I mean, ironically, even the counting of years in our world is divided at the life of Christ. Strange. But, it's, but it happened, even though people still struggle with that and figure out if we should recalibrate you know, it all. And, but it's true. At the very center, the epicenter of all history is a man. His name is Jesus. Matthew 27, 50 through 54. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. Jesus is on the cross. And yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked. I'm sort of emphasizing that for you. I'm talking about epicenters, talking about earthquakes. I'm just wanting you to sort of see that. And the earth quaked. And the rocks were split and the graves were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly saying, truly this was the son of God. So at this great very significant moment, what I'm calling the epicenter of history, we have an earthquake. Isn't that interesting? So I'm calling it an epicenter, the middle of the middle, the center of the center, the lamb is slain, and I'm going to say even God seems to declare that with an earthquake, a quaking of the earth. And so what is at the epicenter of that quake? I mean, the lamb that was slain. The two great earthquakes of the gospel So there's an earthquake at the cross, and did you know there's another earthquake at the resurrection three days later? I mean, what a strange thing. God seems to be into these earthquakes. And so there's another earthquake, and God seems to be hallmarking something, which I could call the gospel, or the middle of the middle, the center of the center. You know, you could read the Bible, and you could know all about God's vast plan of providence and how he's 
doing this great work in the world to, uh, to bring this people group known as the Israelites to himself and to create a law and a culture built around that law that reveals the unseen God. You could have that all down and miss the gospel. We could call it a biblical worldview versus a gospel worldview. A biblical worldview, you could conclude that you're a sinner and you would be accurate. A biblical worldview is true. You're a sinner. However, what does the gospel give you? And he is your righteousness. In other words, if you only have the biblical worldview and you do not have the center of the center, you do not have the answer in Christ, wow, that is a rather miserable state to be in. To just have the truth absent the Christ leaves you destitute of the answer, the good news. Bad news alone is important for the soul to awaken you, to notify you that you need a savior. But when the savior comes, cherish that. That is actually the center of the center. Matthew 28, 2, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. I think God's wanting us to see something here. Something's happening that really matters in history. So this center of the center, this middle of middle, seems to be associated with this one man and what this one man is doing. So I use the term, it's, to say that I use the term makes it sound like I invented the term, in Christ. Paul uses this term in the Bible. That's why I'm saying I probably need to rephrase how I say that. I use the term in Christ. The Bible uses the term in Christ. It doesn't use the term like near Christ or on Christ. It uses in Christ. It's a positional thing. And that's actually very, very significant in the understanding of Christianity. Sort of like when I talk about uh, that glove and that hand, it's a positional thing. The hand is entering inside of something, and that's what makes it work. Well, that's precisely how Christianity works, is we must enter into something. So when we're discipling, I'll use the illustration of clothing, for instance, that clothing apart from, you know, if it's just in a heap off to the side, it doesn't add its virtue and its strength to me, you know, as a man who is designed to wear clothing, right? And so if it's just in a heap, everything's just awkward here. And you're looking at me like, uh, excuse me, but your clothes are supposed to be on you. In other words, I'm supposed to be inside my clothes. And when I'm inside my clothes, they are able to give me and supply for me that strength that they were designed to give. The same is true with Christ. He has knit for us at that cross garments of salvation, a robe of righteousness. But we must put off our old and put on the new. And so we enter into Christ. So I want you to picture this cross is almost like a piece of real estate in a home. And God has given you the ultimate opportunity. He's saying, I have given you a place to live, a place to live forever. And yet where is it situated? It's situated at the epicenter, which is pretty exciting because that's where God has done his greatest work. Yeah, but it's also in the midst of greatest danger. Look at the suffering that took place there. And Jesus is inviting us to this place of suffering. And there's a few of us in here that are sort of wondering if that's the right place to go. I don't know if I really want to live there. And yet, you do want to live there. But there's two sides of you that are battling in this. There's a human natural man side that is self-preserving. And when you see the danger of that epicenter, when you see the suffering of your Savior, you are repulsed. 
and you don't want to get near it. You, are, you have a tendency to self-preserve, to think about your own skin. And Jesus says, if you consider your own skin above me, you will lose your skin. In other words, the surest way to lose your life is to try and hold on to it. But if you give up your life and you come to me and trust that this home that I've built for you, in the middle of what appears to be suffering and danger and that is fraught with accusation and harm and difficulty is actually the greatest place for you. You were designed to live here. And so when we choose to go there, to that place of the earthquake, I mean, if you knew an earthquake was going to hit Windsor, we'd probably all get in our car and drive somewhere else. You don't want to be where the danger is. You don't want to deliberately choose to be in the midst of challenge. And yet the cross life, the Christian life, is actually beckoning us to a place of challenge. It's called a narrow way. It says few are those who find it. And I always like to add the caveat, few are those who want to find it. You know what narrow means? A way of difficulty and compression. It's like, yeah, I'd like to walk that way. I mean, it's, it's even called, like, difficulty is like over the path. It's like, are you sure you want to walk down this path, the path of difficulty? This is the path of my Savior. If this is where he is, this is where I want to be. So in Christ, Jesus is meant to be entered like a door, like a strong tower, like clothing, like a house. He's the place we are to live and call home. This past weekend, we had a women's conference, and the theme was abide. And that's, that's a term that goes along with a home. It also goes with a branch, like a, a branch in a vine. And that branch needs to choose to cling and call that vine its home so that that which is in the vine, that sap, that living substance can enter into the branch and change it. And the same is true with us. When we enter into God, we enter into Christ by faith, then all that we need to live, that living sap is supplied for us. It's known as the Holy Spirit. So the place of the earthquake you're going to notice we can have all sorts of different titles for this place. So I'll give you just a few of these titles, okay? And some of them are going to get you to go, I want to go there. And then the next ones are going to, you know, cause you to go, I don't want to go there. And then I do want to go there. I don't want to go there. It's the place of our rescue. I want to go there. Well, it's also the place of eternal, our eternal living. I want to go there. It's the place of suffering. Okay, I don't want to go there. It's the place of victory. It's the place of war. It's the place of peace. It's the place of agony. It's the place of joy. Isn't that interesting? I just described the Christian life. You see, to live in Christ is to share in that location, in that place. And there is a propensity in all of us to find a different spot to call home. And yet Jesus is calling us to himself. And when we live there, yes, we will find suffering, but you have to understand that suffering through a different lens than a human lens. Like, for instance, I, Eric Ludi, know that suffering is one of my greatest friends. And the reason I am strong in my Christian life is because I've embraced the difficulty and the suffering and the trials, and I've rejoiced in and through them, and I've used them as athletic equipment. If you go into a gym, you could look at that gym as a whole bunch of torture devices. Look around, oh, look at that, oh, that's, that's terrible. Or you could come up to it and say, make me stronger. 
When you embrace the gym, it makes you stronger. When you are scared of the gym, you're scared of a barbell on top of you, you're scared of weight, you're scared of that lactic acid pumping through your muscles. Oh no, that's gonna be painful. Well, then you're going to be miserable the whole time. But when you embrace it, you get stronger. That's Christianity. You see, if you look at life, if you look at the calling of Christ just through human lenses and you don't put on your spiritual glasses and say, God, let me see this your way, then I can understand why you would be repulsed. It's a call to die, to give up your life, to say goodbye to the life you once had. That doesn't sound very attractive. But do you know what you're being called to? To a life of such fullness, of intimacy with the king of all kings, the creator of the heavens and the earth, eternal, full of peace and joy and effervescent with love. Oh, it's good. But it doesn't translate that well if you do not have your spiritual glasses on. John 2, 19 through 21. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So the temple could be called the house. In the Old Testament, it's called the house of the Lord a lot. And so that's why I'm talking about real estate, a house, and Jesus. He's likening his very body to a house. And he's saying, you tear down this house, I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And so what we see is, it's like a picture of real estate. And Jesus is calling us to enter him. That's actually the concept, to believe in him and to actually enter into Christ by faith. And so he's calling us to live in this house, to be a part of this house. That's what we're called as the body of Christ. We're the house of Christ. That's, that's literally what we're described as. And so what we have is this idea that what is taking place in the epicenter is the tearing down of an old in the establishment of something new. And when we come to that cross, when we make that our home, our old life goes adios, and a new life is constructed. Are you willing to call this dangerous place home? You have to be a little loony to do that, don't you? Let, let me go through a list of questions. Are you willing to sell all other property and move here to this place? There's certain things that are necessary for you to find your home in Christ. And one is you have to wave goodbye. And that's a hard one for us. It's hard to give up our life even though we really want to because we're not really that impressed with our life and we don't want to keep our old life. But there's certain aspects of our old life that are familiar. There's certain aspects of our old life that we like, like control. Now, when we have control of our, our old life, it messes it up, and we could even possibly acknowledge that, but we still want to have control. God, if I give up my life, if I give up the way I used to live, well, then how do I know I'll be satisfied? That's a classic concern that we have. I remember dealing with that when it came to uh, relationships with the opposite sex. Because as long as I'm in control, I was blowing it. I mean, messing things up all over the place. But at least it's, you know, I can mess it up. If I give it to God, then he might mess it up. And I didn't know if I wanted that because, you know, this is going to sound a little strange, but I remember because I was very, very American, and maybe this is just human, not just American, but very externally 
motivated when it came to relationships. Everything was evaluated externally. No, not attractive. No, attractive. You know, everything was extra. I had no idea what relationships really were, right? Didn't know how they worked, how they functioned. And so when I was giving this area to God, it was very fearful because I'm sort of like saying, God, you can be my matchmaker. But I'm thinking, God has some weird taste. <laughs> Just hang out in church and there's a lot of funny looking people. And God's going to potentially match me up with one of those funny-looking people, right? That was in my head. And again, it, it, I lacked the confidence that God knows me, that God knows what I'm called to. He knows how I'm created. He knows what I'm designed for. I can trust him. To truly thrive in Christ, you have to be willing to let go of the controls. You have to be willing to say goodbye to your life as you've known it. Are you willing to throw away everything that can't coexist in this divine and heavenly home? There's things that just don't fit in the life of Christ. And you know it. It's called conviction. It's like, this doesn't belong here. But to let those things go and to say goodbye to them is, is hard. Are you willing to move into a place where the sound of war will be the background score to your life? If you just play it cool with the culture and just go in alignment with social and political correctness, your life will be a lot easier. That's the voice of the devil. And the other voice is like, that's a place of war. That's a place of rejection. That's a place of mockery. Are you seriously thinking of moving there? Here you have your bags and you're like, oh, I was, but that's a good argument. <laughs> See, during these last couple of years, it's been increasingly more and more challenging to be bold for your faith. We used to think, you know, that we were bold for our faith, you know, when, you know, we say something like, God bless you. You know, it's becoming even more difficult to say, God bless you, in our culture. And yet, we need to recognize this has always been a part and parcel of the Christian life, that we are willing to go where he goes. You know, when he was on that cross, he didn't look that cool. He looked like a criminal. Isn't that an amazing thought? That God Almighty, who was pure and perfect and righteous, allowed himself to be viewed as a criminal. He was hung naked on a cross. Two criminals on either side. It's pretty hard to mix him up as the son of God in that situation. Are you willing to go there? Are you willing to make your life there? Yeah, I like that piece of real estate. That looks like a good spot of land to build my life and my future. And yet, even though on the outside, I know, I'm describing what it looks like. I'm familiar with it too. It doesn't look very attractive. And there's a part of us that wants the applause of the world. I get that. There's a part of us that wants to be popular. There's a part of us that wants to be appeasing to all of this around us. We don't want drama. We don't want antagonism. We want peace. And yet God says, come and live with me. Come and identify in my sufferings. Will you join my fellowship? And that's a challenge to our soul. And yet, when we are willing to go there, we find life abundant. There's a reason why I smile a lot. And it's not because I've avoided that place. It's because I've called that place my home. And I have a lot of people that hate me. I have a lot of people that mock me. I have a lot of people that think I'm an idiot. And I'm a happy guy. It doesn't disturb me. Well, it, it has disturbed me. I don't want to make it sound like I'm 
totally you know, indestructible. It's like, you can make fun of me all day long and I don't feel it, I don't have a thought that creeps in and goes, Eric, there's probably an easier way to live this life. Oh, it still sneaks in. But there is such a satisfaction in this life. There's such a sturdiness in Christ. Are you willing to choose the ignominy that is associated with this location? For those of this earth call those that dwell here fools, idiots, the off-scouring of the world, refuse, garbage, ignorant, small-minded, intellectually inferior. I, I don't know about you, but I don't prefer those terms. I don't gravitate towards that. It's like, how would I like my class reunion when I come back to visit? How would I like them to think of me? Uh, as a fool, an idiot, the off-scouring of the world, refuse, garbage, ignorant, small-minded, intellectually inferior? No, that wasn't what I was thinking. I want them to be impressed with me. I want them to think, wow, his life is really successful. Wow, he has really made some good choices. I am so impressed with this guy. Have you ever heard of Eric Ludy? He, he's a very impressive character. That, that's what I prefer in the natural sense. I don't prefer that list. And yet, when I am willing to go where God lives, and to go where that lamb that was slain is. Yes, that is what comes with it. But that isn't the end of the story. Just because you have that list, and just because people that don't quite get it, and have not awakened to the truth of Jesus Christ, think ill thoughts, there is such a wonderful intimacy with the king in that fellowship of suffering, sharing his name, bearing his burdens. This is life itself. This is what you want. This is capital L life instead of the lowercase l life that is passing away. It's worth it. Are you willing to fall in love with this place, cherish it as your eternal dwelling, and covenant to never leave, whether in sickness or in health, whether living in plenty or in want, and whether amidst bomb blasts or the cooing of turtle doves? You see, it's, you know, covenant of marriage actually comes from the covenant that we have with Christ. The covenant of marriage is merely an earthly picture, a shadow of what we're actually entering into by faith in Christ. And when we enter in, there's going to be challenges. Just like in marriage, there's there's moments, if you just gave up on marriage because it got difficult, there would never be a marriage that lasts more than a few months. In other words, a covenant commitment is one that is willing to endure all challenge, to go the distance no matter what. And so I want you to have a grander view of what we are doing when we choose to go to the lamb that was slain, when we choose to go where he is. You know, it's interesting because I've been focused on the cross side of it. It's not very attractive, but you know where that lamb is? He's in the midst of the throne. We could focus on the throne side of it. You know where he is seated? He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. You know where it says in Ephesians that we are seated? We are seated in heavenly places in Christ. So as a result, when you go to live at that place where he is, yeah, 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 yeah. In the earthly sense, you're in a war zone. You're at the cross. You're in the place of suffering. But in the heavenly sense... You're in the kingdom. You're in the place of life, the throne room of grace, you know, where you can obtain mercy and grace for help in time of need, which is basically every moment of every day of our life. Yet we have access to it. Why would you ever want to leave this place? Are you willing to make the epicenter of the most dangerous earthquake in universal history your dwelling place? 
you know, they could take tours and say, yeah, this is one of the greatest earthquakes ever took place right here. It's like, yeah, and how, you know, could I live there? Who would want to live there? Uh, me. And you have to get a little cuckoo in Christianity because you have to say goodbye to your earthly reasoning. It's cuckoo in the earthly sense. In the heavenly sense, it's wisdom. It's the mind of Christ to see things, to appraise things, to appropriate things through God's lens. This is actually the greatest property on earth. I want to live there. So here's our invitation. Come to the epicenter and live. The difference between visiting and abiding. Now many of us are struggling at, at, a, at maybe even this juncture of our Christian walk with visiting instead of abiding. It's like we, we show up and, and we have our moments in Christ where we're sort of hanging out going, yeah, I'm with you, Christ. And then we're so easily pulled away because we don't want to actually live there. When the, when the crowd starts showing up, we, we run off. And I, I've done that in my life where I feel that hot rush of embarrassment for standing for Christ and you sort of shuffle off into the shadows and just hope that no one sees you. It's, you know, that, that Peter propensity in us is very real. And the only reason Peter changed wasn't because Peter suddenly dug down deep and said, I'm not going to shame Christ anymore. I'm not going to deny him anymore. No, it's because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was given the life of Christ. He had the power of Almighty God to be able to now do Christianity instead of lean on his own strength. I will not deny you. We could all make a big blustery statement today of how we're going to live for Christ and we will fail if it's in our own strength. But if we yield to Christ and say, oh Lord, apart from you, I can't do this. Please empower me to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. That's his delight. That's what he specializes in. But to have that life, we need to abide. So let's talk about the difference between a visit and abiding. A visit, it's a stopover, a short-term excursion, a stay that is not intended to be permanent. Abiding, moving in, remaining, deciding that this is the spot, staying no matter the challenges, adapting to whatever the house demands, and cherishing and caring for the place as if it is your very own. Here's a picture. There's different forms of uh, grafting. Uh, a, like when we talk about a, graft, uh, a branch being grafted into a vine. And uh, this is called a bud graft. And I thought it was such a unique picture of the Christian life. Because what you have is you have a vine, which is symbolic of Christ. And you have a little bud, which is us, right? You're, you're rather cute up there on the screen, by the way. But for this to work the vine has to be cut open. There is an incision. There is a wound that is created. And then that bud has to submit. It doesn't seem like the, very, the most pleasant place for a bud to hang out is in the middle of a wound. And yet as it does, and then you see it closing around him and then it bind. It's not going anywhere. I mean, that bud is going to have a tough time uh, getting out of there now. And that's the way we want our life. We want to enter into the bud graft. We want to say, I want permanency in this. I want to enter into you through your wounds, and I want that life that only you have. You know, there's a third earthquake of the gospel. It's interesting because there's three major events that are going to happen in this uh, short window of time of basically 50 days. 
Uh, Pentecost means 50. And so you have the cross, you have uh, the resurrection, and then you have the outpouring of God's Spirit. And each one of them seems to be marked by an earthquake. So the cross, the resurrection, and the indwelling. Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Of course, Acts 2, which could have been even a better uh, scripture to illustrate it, the room is shaken. Isn't that interesting that we have three earthquakes, and they all sort of herald and point our attentions towards the work of the Lamb that was slain. This is what he came to do. He didn't just come to wash us and to cleanse us, and to give us his righteousness. But he came to give us newness of life, and to give us his very life, so that we would not, in our own vain attempts, try in these bodies to mimic heaven, but that heaven would come and dwell inside of us and live through us. It is not you attempting to love like Christ. It is the God of love moving in and loving through you. It is not you attempting to be humble like Christ was humble. It's the spirit of humility entering into your life and changing you so that the humility of God evidences itself through you. It is not you attempting to be joyful in your own grit and determination. It's the God who is joyful moving in and calling this home and being joyful in and through you. Christianity, that's how it's always worked. However, we, as humans, have a tendency to try and do it ourselves. I don't know where this comes from, but it's very real to all of us. Where we can know that we are supposed to bear the fruit of the Spirit, but we try and drudge it up ourselves. And it doesn't work that way. It works God's way. And for that to work, we need to agree first by coming to that cross. Isn't it funny? We don't just get to go to the throne first. It's like, okay, I'll go to the throne and I'll get strong and then I'll go to the cross. We have to start with death to enter into life. I remember one famous evangelist once said uh, that resurrection life is always on the far side of the cross. So you're like, how do I get there? How do I get there? And there's this cross in between. It's like, ah, can I get, can I somehow? And yet it always is on the far side. It's on the other side of the cross. All right, I think I need to start here. That's right. We start with the cross. God has come to abide in us. It's an incredible reality. And I don't, you know, sometimes you ever notice that you can know things, you could repeat them, you could rehearse them, you could answer correctly on questions, but then every now and then you see it. And you're like, wait, 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 hold on. Are you actually saying that God wants to live inside this body? Yes, that's what I'm saying. You see, you know that, don't you? You know that, that God is actually intending to make your body his home. But why is it that that seems like some weird vaporous concept out there as opposed to a very real thing that you live with daily? It's one of the most astounding things, if not the most astounding thing that's ever taken place in all of human history, is that the God of the universe is making our bodies his home. That's what Christ purchased on the cross. This is his grand agenda, is to not just get us to heaven, but to get heaven into us. And so as a result, 
I think it's high time we get startled afresh by the concept. God has come to abide in us. So how are you going to abide well? Because you're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. How are you going to do this then? I think you need some help. You need God to abide in you. And he's very good at training you, instructing you in how to abide in him. And when you start to wander, he's like, <clears throat> you see, he's very good at being a shepherd to lead his sheep down that narrow way. But first, we must go to the epicenter and make him our forever home. We do that, and then we start to see the dominoes fall in our life, and the Holy Spirit can move in. So I added this to the end. This is something that uh, I just find extremely fascinating. And it's very encouraging. In a strange sense, it's very encouraging. It all started with, uh, well, it's, it's a sandwich shop. Uh, what's it called? Jimmy John's. Jimmy John's, some other uh, state. Uh, I was, we were on a, a trip going through, and they, they had all these like unique things on the wall. Like you just sort of read it, and like, oh, that's fascinating. And this was some study, I want to say Oxford University, where they were studying the human mind. And basically the concept was that if, I'm guessing you have to know the language of which you're, which you're reading uh, for this to work, but if you take words and you keep the first letter of the word and the last letter of a word, at least four letter, four letter words or longer, and you shuffle and mix up all the interior letters, that you can read it. And I, I mean, I'm just like, that is ridiculous. And then they have a paragraph and I read it. It's like, what? How does that work? Now the reason I say that this is encouraging is because when you come to Christ and you root yourself in him, there's a lot more work that needs to take place in your life. Have you ever wondered why God would choose us to reveal himself to this world? It's like, that was a bad idea, God. I mean, there's a lot better. Your angels would be a far better choice. And if you just stayed around, just sort of waltzed around the earth, you know, you could flutter around the earth too. I'm sure you could do it anyway. You could have it written in the sky. You could do it a lot better than through us. This is a bad idea. And that's why I really am fascinated by this. I have a paragraph. This is my experimental paragraph that I wrote. It was quite a few years ago, and I drudged it up for this. And basically, I took this paragraph and totally muddled it up. But all the... All the there's certain letters at the end of each word that are fixed. And that's the same with us. If we have certain things fixed in our life, if we have Christ and we're in Christ and Christ is in us, okay, there's still a lot more work that needs to do. This is the whole sanctification process. Yes, but God can get a message and it can be clear even through a very imperfect church because he's really good at being God. So I'm just going to show you this paragraph and I just want you to marvel with me. And I want you to imagine that this is your life speaking. Okay, because it sort of looks like all of our lives. It's muddled. It's imperfect. You see all the muddles. Like, oh, that needs to be fixed. Oh, we need to fix that. Did anyone do a grammar check on this? Is there a spiritual grammarly that we can download for our lives? What is this? And yet, in and through this imperfect paragraph comes through a very beautiful portrayal of the gospel. As humans, we don't appear to be the best carrying devices for the message of heaven, do we? Why doesn't God use angels instead? Or for that matter, why doesn't he just do it himself? 
Why doesn't he just come down in a cloud of glory and boom with a voice of thunder? But he has indeed chosen us in all our jumbled weakness to be his ideal communication vessels. That said, if he is going to use us, he must first establish two things in our life. First, a firm belief in the word of God in text. And second, a firm belief in the word of God made flesh and what that word of God in flesh did for us 2,000 years ago on that cross. When those two things are established, it's the equivalent of having the first letter and the last letter of every word in this paragraph fixed and established. The stuff in the middle is often jumbled, but the message will still perfectly get through the imperfect vessel. Isn't God amazing? I think that's an incredible picture of what all of us are living in right now. How could God possibly get a message through us? Well, I would say the same. I don't know how he just got that message through that. And I just like read it, effortlessly read it. You're like, you memorized it, Eric. I did not memorize it. (laughs) That is remarkable how God can use us to reveal himself. This is his way. And let's rejoice in that today as we enter into a time of worship. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.